Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, it's good to see a lot of smiles this morning. It's a, spring's great, isn't it? Just a renewal for everybody. I invite those who would like their little ones to be up through grade six in a age-appropriate service downstairs for Children's Church. You're welcome to keep them here as well. Your choice, parents, but it is available to you, and thank you, teachers, for serving in those areas, especially when their pastor goes over and they have a lesson for a certain amount of time, and they extend grace to him. Just uh, as I was sitting there getting ready to, to come up here and speak to you, I was just uh, overwhelmed by gratefulness, just for the people on a regular basis who make this service happen, and you probably don't think about it, but John back in the back, Ethan tonight, uh, this morning, uh, Todd Deacon back there, they come in early, they stay late, they make sure things happen so that it can happen here, and for Alex, and for Jess, and for Eli, and for Justin, and for DJ, who just uh, came and have practiced and listened to music and do all that. I'm just very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for the people who make this worship service possible, and, and, and it's their desire as we pray every morning um, that you will come into a worshipful time, and that when we get to this point, you're ready to be fed and to open the word and to ponder. So that is, so I'm just so grateful for people who are so faithful, and thank you uh, to you who I mentioned. I appreciate you very much. All right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I hope that you've been in the Word this week. I say this often. I hope it's not becoming like a broken record to you because it is so vitally important for your walk with the Lord that you're in the Word every day. Uh, we do provide a trifold in the back that can help you do that through the Bible in a year and that you just continue to make that happen. Uh, and so if you've got some questions about how to read your Bible or how to go about it, or if you haven't done it before, I'd, be loved, I'd love to talk with you about that and, uh, and get you on that track. But let me encourage you to be in the Word every single day. It is how the Lord's designed that for you that you might understand him and understand his will, understand the many circumstances in which he has worked, that you might be stabilized in your walk with the Lord and enriched in the knowledge of his word, that you might be ready for every good work. And so be in the word every, every single day, all right? Well, beloved, today we are coming really uh, to the end of chapter four. We're gonna spend the last Sunday dealing with these first four chapters uh, in 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, that have to do with unity, or on the other side, the disease of division, and as we will see, and I've said to you a number of times as we've started this study, uh, these passages, of course, can be curative and they can be preventative. It kind of depends on what the situation may be. I think they've been a little bit of both here over the last couple of months. As we deal with certain things here and certain individuals, I think they've been curative. And I think they can also be uh, preventative as well as we read through the passages and we see what is there. We understand what to watch for and what to watch out for. And so just take that as it may, as the Lord provides wisdom by his Holy Spirit to your own heart as you read these things. Some hard to preach, some hard to hear, but they are part of God's word. And we go verse by verse through it. We allow him to make those applications in the timing that he sees fit. So I'd like you to open your Bibles. We're going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And uh, you read along with me if you would. You can find New American Standard in the chair in front of you or just read in your copy. I'll give you verse cues and we'll stay together. Verse 14, Paul says, uh, make sure we're on the right slide here. Verse 14, Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 15, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Verse 16, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Verse 18, 
Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, verse 19, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's stop right there. Now, as we have been going through, of course, this passage, and you've been with us, we have illustrated a number of things. Last time, particularly before uh, Resurrection Sunday, we saw that Paul makes a habit as he's dealing with problems in the church of also explaining his relationship to the church. It's a marvelous thing as you see that dynamic unfold, and it's not isolated just to the book of books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, all through Paul's writings. But what ends up happening uh, as, we, as he does that is we're not only allowed to see the problem, but we also get to see the many approaches to the solutions to the problems by his relationship with them and the, much, and the dynamic that's there. And it's illustrated by the many facets of Paul's relationship to the church, and by example then, the minister's relationship to the church, and then to an extent, every believer in some applications. And so there's this marvelous trickle-down as we understand how Paul's dealing with these things, how we then are to approach uh, those issues. For example, we saw uh, last time a domestic imagery, and I gave you kind of a list, an overview, if you will, of just some of the things we've seen just in 1 Corinthians. We saw a domestic imagery, which really speaks of the ministry in servants and galley slaves and stewards. And then we saw, I gave you some examples last time, of a construction imagery. Paul says he's a master builder. He lays a foundation. We saw a laborer imagery, co-workers in Christ, uh, working along with Christ. We have an agricultural imagery uh, in the ministry of farmer, uh, watering and planting and harvesting and shepherding. And then we have the imagery of an accountant from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, which we'll get to. But we saw just briefly, and that's the helping of people come to the place where their account is reconciled through a relationship to God through Christ. And then a stewardship that's given there uh, that we are to make sure we take care of and discharge. And you have what could be called legal imagery of an ambassador, an overseer, a herald, and there's going to be some others. But as we see those image, that imagery of, of Paul's relationship and then on down a minister's relationship to his church, uh, you're going to see that these are ways that both the problem is addressed and the solution to the problem is addressed. Now, in those first four chapters we've been studying, Paul's been very straightforward with the church. Perhaps it's been surprising to you how straightforward he's been. And he's come down hard on their fleshliness, their worldliness, and their pride. And he has taken them to task for their love of human wisdom. And so he's gone through all of that. And for their divisiveness and for polarizing the church, some of them with their opinions. And when he came to the passages right before these that we're studying now, he became very sarcastic. And as we saw last time, two weeks ago, with sarcasm, you're really dealing with a very forceful language. And he's been very stern with them. And he will again in the chapters that follow. And as he deals with their issues over and against God's plan for the healthy church. And so, as we see in verses 14 through 21, Paul's explaining another dynamic of his relationship to the church. And as we saw last time, this is the relationship of a spiritual father. And so he's gone through all these others, and then he's come to this one. And we really get the beginnings of that indication of verse 14. Look there if you would. Uh, Paul says, I do not write these things uh, to shame you, uh, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And then it's very clear as he moves to verse 15, so beloved children, that's how Paul looks at the church. Then he says, verse 15, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. And so all of this, uh, all these relationships uh, with the churches are personal. All of his dynamic, as he's talked about the agricultural and the, uh, and the servants and ministry and all those things, are very personal. But this is a very close, a very personal relationship he's describing. Probably one of the most personal. 
It's very intense. It's very invested. And this relationship by Paul to the church is very, very serious. And so it may not be at this point a relationship that they want to reciprocate as he's written this letter and they're reading it. It may not be one that they want to acknowledge necessarily, but it is an accurate description of how Paul feels and the responsibility he feels concerning the church. And as all wise fathers must do consistently, you have to deal sometimes sternly and strictly with your children, but you do that because you're their father and you love them. And just as a reminder, like Proverbs 13, 24 tells us, uh, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently or promptly. And then Proverbs 19, 18 that we looked at when we looked at the wise household, discipline your son while there is hope and don't desire his death. And so we understand the, the problems that will occur if it doesn't occur in, in, uh, with our physical children, our, our strictness and sternness from time to time that has to be there. And so uh, that is what uh, you see then, a father has the hard stuff that has to be done. And that's what you're doing when you use Ephesians 6 that instructs us discipline and instruction for your children in love, conforming them uh, to their li- and their lives to a biblical model of, of living. That's what you're doing because you love them. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul says, uh, just the end or just the first thing uh, that I need to bring to your attention uh, I want to tell you, he says, that the reason I'm going through this hard stuff is because I have an overwhelming sense of responsibility for you as a loving father does for his children. That's the essence. Okay, So when you capture that picture, then everything that Paul has said before then comes in line because you understand his investment then in their lives. Now, just as a review, look back at verse 15, if you would, uh, of 1 Corinthians 4. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, he says, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, you, in other words, you may have a lot of instructors, but you only have one spiritual father. And so he, he gave the gospel out. We saw that. Faith comes by hearing. He planted. He said, Apollos watered. God gave the increase. Uh, they responded, and he tells them he's not just their tutor. He's not just a slave that is uh, hired to bring them along. That's what he means by tutor. You have many tutors. He says uh, he really is compassionate. He shows them how he feels. He shows his heart. It was probably hard for them to see it during his rebuke, uh, but he wants them to see it now. And, and, and it was not just merely carrying out orders as a servant. He's sensitive to them as a father. Now, the passages from 14 through 21 then really expand on the concept and develops that for us in a very beautiful picture of the ministry of a spiritual father. And, and we've already made the case, I think, that the imagery of a spiritual father is how the scripture describes Paul's ministry. It's how the scripture describes a pastor's ministry. It also describes every believer's ministry to an extent. And, and just so this would be obvious, last time we were together, we pulled some few things out that made it clear what that's supposed to look like. If you should be a spiritual father, and so we could see what that must look like in my life and what it look like in your life. And the first thing we saw, the first characteristic we saw, is just the most obvious one, is that you have to be producing spiritual offspring. And of course, we say that a lot. I encourage you to witness a lot. We've equipped you to do that in numerous classes. We want to continue to do that. But it's so important. We've got a renewed emphasis over this summer about that very thing. But producing spiritual offspring is your job. It's my job, okay? And you need to be about doing that. In other words, leading people to Christ is the thing, all right? It's the most obvious part of being a spiritual father. For he says, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So in order to be a father, you have to have a child. And that just follows along. Every believer should be a spiritual father in the sense that they're seeing people come to Christ from their witness, okay? And that comes as a result of consistently giving out the gospel. People come to Christ. And they come to Christ because, remember, faith comes by 
hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So in your testimony, as we uh, help you to learn when, you are, when you're led to Christ here and when you're baptized here, in your testimony, the bad news and good news in the gospel has to be woven in. Not just your personal relationship to Christ and your life story, but mixed into that life story is actually the gospel message, which includes bad news and good news. So we know that Paul was a spiritual father, and if you give out the gospel, the bad news and good news consistently enough, you will become one as well many times over. And no doubt, Paulos, uh, after Paul added to the number uh, and became a spiritual father to some, we know some came from abroad to this church from under Peter's ministry, and he would have been their spiritual father. And of course, then they came up under the ministry of Paul and then later Apollos, and then some came from Jesus' earthly ministry. So there's a big mix in the church, some under Paul who came to faith under Paul, some came to faith under Apollos, some from Peter's ministry, some from Jesus' ministry, and, so, and some, no doubt, from believers reproducing themselves. And so inside this church, we have this mix. Paul's uh, making it clear what this is supposed to look like. Now, Paul referred to Timothy, and we're going to look at that more closely today, and Titus as his children, as well as Anesiphorus. Uh, Paul went on a number of missionary journeys, planting churches. And when you personally lead someone to Christ, you tend to have a greater feeling of responsibility and duty for those individuals. And sometimes that's a heartache if they don't follow as closely as you'd like to see them follow and they won't come under a discipleship and won't do what you, you're showing them needs to be done from the Word of God. And sometimes it's a joy because they grow really quickly and, they, and, and the ministry goes on to expand on pastures. And so there's this mix of joy and pain connected to being a spiritual father, just like raising physical children. And so we have this wonderful dynamic going on and this great example from Paul about what that's supposed to look like. So Paul, uh, no doubt, uh, led many on his missionary journeys, planting churches. He talks to them about as being spiritual uh, children to him in other passages we looked at last time. But this is the reason Paul writes with such intensity, see, and such engagement, is this is how he feels. And then verse 14, of course, gave us the next two characteristics of a father. And we looked at that last time. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. My beloved children. And that's a great uh, passage uh, that talks about Go ahead forward, if you would, Ethan. For some reason, I'm not connecting with that. <clears throat> There's a second image of a spiritual father has to do with the characteristic of love. Agapetos, the adjective, is a very important part of describing Paul's relationship to them. Uh, it's from the noun uh, agape. It's the strongest word for love in the scriptures. It's the word that is expounded on in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, so they were hearing that he was, uh, what he was saying. Uh, and uh, translating that, he must not like us to say what he's saying, to be sarcastic. He must really despise us. And Paul says, quite the contrary, uh, I love you. I admonish you because I love you. And then 2 Corinthians 12, 15, Paul says, I'll most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. I, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? In other words, uh, Paul says, I'll do what it takes to tangibly express my love for you. And there's an intensity there in that relationship. Paul loved the Lord, and he loved the church so much, he wanted to see the kind of immature, fleshly behavior that was going on in Corinth gone. And then that leads to the next characteristic of a spiritual father, which we saw in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to, what? Admonish you as my beloved children. And that's the third characteristic, and that's this willingness to admonish. Nutheteo, that's that Greek verb. It has the idea, we said, to warn with a goal of change taking place. Obviously, there were some problems in the congregation uh, amongst some of those, and Paul used a number of approaches to address the problem, and it all fell under an admonishment to change. So it was all part of that relationship that he had with them. And then we saw the fourth characteristic, and that was to be an example. 
he says this, therefore I exhort you be mimites of me. And that's where we get our term mimic, that Greek uh, noun being uh, mimites. One of the best ways to describe uh, that relationship of a disciple and a discipler is just you want them then to be what you are. Just set the example of what you want to see in them. And so your life then becomes that example. Once again, as we compare this principle to child rearing at home, you better be the person that you want, it, want them to be because they'll reject what you're saying if they don't see it in you, okay? Just a consistent inconsistency in your own life will make them likely reject what you say that you believe. You're going to reproduce yourself all over again. So just as you produce spiritual children, as you lead people to Christ, just set, them, just set the pattern of your life in what you want them to be. Whatever you want them to be, be that person, see? And Paul puts that verb in the present middle imperative. This is what you are to do, he tells the Corinthian church. Very important, okay? It's not just a suggestion. This is what you are to do. In other words, God's commands are for his people and not for him, okay? So be you imitators of me. And that's a command to those who read it, okay? And not just, okay, God, make me like that. It is your engagement by your volitional will, obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit in your own life, making that change. And then just really to to undermine, uh, undergird, if you would, the urgency of what he has to say. Beginning of verse 16, he says, Therefore, I exhort you, parakaleo, I call you, I summon you to my side in this. And this is present active indicative. Okay, this is what needs to be going on right now, Paul says. I summon you here, do this, be part of this. And, and uh, important to remember, and I didn't mention this before, but anytime I say the middle voice, just remember, that just indicates the action is initiated by the subject. Okay? All right, so it's your job, he says. Be imitators. Now, look at verse 17, if you would. And really, we have looked at four characteristics of what it looks like to be a spiritual father. And we're going to put that on hold just for a minute because there's a section here that I want to make sure we look at, which is the other side. What does a spiritual child look like? And then we're going to see two more characteristics of a spiritual father. That's kind of how we're going to spread out the morning. So you'll know as we go through, we're going to see some characteristics of Timothy, because I think that's important. What are we looking for? And for this, this becomes really a model for discipleship for us. I mean, it just kind of opens up and just kind of falls off the tree, if you will. But we're going to see what we're looking for, what we want to produce, okay? And then again, we'll look back at, at a couple more characteristics of a spiritual father. So that kind of sums up our time, and we'll close out verse 21 with those things. Now look at verse 17, if you would. <clears throat> for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Let's stop right there. Now, the key to this passage really is for this reason. That little phrase right there, for this reason. That's the key to unlocking the next verse. And the idea is this, okay, keep this in mind. He's still talking about spiritual fatherhood and producing offspring. He's still talking about admonition and love and being an example, okay? So he says, for this reason, I'll give you an example of what that looks like in Timothy, okay? Because I want you to understand what that looks like and what that produces, I'm going to send Timothy to you. He counted Timothy to be a spiritual son. Paul spent a lot of time with Timothy. He gave him a lot of instruction. He calls him in verse 17, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In 1 Timothy 1, 2, Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Uh, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, 14, he says, I'm writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long. So he's talking to Timothy as Timothy's at Ephesus. But in the case, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So if you just look at that right there, that little example, that explanation really helps us to see why Paul was sending Timothy. Some in the Corinthian church were not conducting themselves as they ought to conduct themselves in the church. Timothy was properly discipled. He was Paul's child. Paul couldn't go, so he sent a Timothy. Timothy knows how to conduct himself in the church. He's had Paul's instruction, so he's going to go to Corinth, and he's going to make sure they understand by his presence there what that looks like. Now, Paul calls him again, verse 17, Timothy, who is my beloved faithful child in the Lord. <clears throat> and as we looked at what a true spiritual father is, some of the characteristics, we realize that each believer is to be producing spiritual offspring. And so that's why we're going to pause here just a minute. And Paul's going to send, he's going to send Timothy because he's a wonderful example of a spiritual child. So what I think we should do is this, look at some examples of what we're to be producing by looking at Timothy for a minute. So it's going to cause us to put it on pause here for a minute. We're going to look in Acts, and we're going to look again in 1 Timothy, and I think that that would be very beneficial to us to kind of see the kind of guy we're talking about, to kind of see the kind of disciple we're to be be making uh, as we produce spiritual children. And it's going to fill in some wonderful details of this man who was led to the Lord and discipled by Paul. Thank you, now, look at verse 17. It says, Timothy, who is my beloved faithful child in the Lord. Now, that, word, that name Timothy is made up of two Greek words. One means to honor, and the other is the word for God. And so Timothy has a beautiful name. It's uh, one who honors God. It's a wonderful name, no doubt. It was probably given to him by his mother and his grandmother, who must have been devout Jews, according to 2 Timothy. So, Timothy's quite a guy. A, uh, a little bit of background on him. He's been with Paul for about 20 years from the time of his conversion as a young man in his late teens to the time of about 35 years of age when he receives his letters from Paul in 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, He was apparently left behind at Berea with Silas when Paul escaped to Athens. He later joined Paul there in Athens. Later, uh, in Acts 19, he was sent as Paul's representative to Macedonia. In Acts 20, he was there uh, when the collection from the churches were being taken to Jerusalem with Paul. uh, He was with Paul in Corinth when he wrote the letter to Rome. Uh, We see in our passage he was Paul's representative to Corinth when there was trouble in the church. Uh, He was with Paul when he wrote 2 Corinthians, perhaps delivered a letter back from the Corinthian church to Paul. Uh, uh, It was Timothy who went to see how things were going at Thessalonica. He was with Paul when Paul penned the letter to the Thessalonian church. Uh, He was with Paul in prison when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, and he would be Paul's representative there. Uh, He was with Paul when he wrote to the Colossians. He was with Paul when he wrote to Philemon. He was constantly with him. He was his beloved disciple. He was the son of a Jewish mother, the son of a Greek father, and a willing disciple. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, you can turn there, but I'm going to uh, put them on the screen too, but I think it's important that you can underline some of these things. Um, In Philippians 2, 19, uh, Paul, during his first imprisonment, has Timothy with him, and he says this about him as he's writing to the church in a letter. It says, but I hope in the Lord to Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. In other words, Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Why? Well, there's nobody like me, like Timothy is like me. Who will, and that's what he means in verse 20. He says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. In other words, he'll do for you what I would do for you, whatever that is. He'll rebuke you, he'll reprove you, he'll encourage you, he'll pray for you, he'll bear your burdens, he'll serve you, he'll do all the things that I would do for you. The same thing we see in Paul is the same thing he says you're going to see in Timothy. And then he says this kind of sad thing. He says, for they all seek after their own interests, not those in 
Christ. So the idea there really is, I'm looking around at the people I've invested myself in, who may be my children in the Lord, perhaps, uh, and I can only find one who's like me, and the rest are seeking their own things, not really open to the things of Jesus as they ought to be. That's the issue. Okay? There are people who are perhaps my spiritual children. Uh, perhaps they've come to faith some other way by duplication. But I'm just looking around at the church, he says, and I don't see a whole lot of people who put a high priority on the things of Christ. I just see just this one at this point, Paul says, and that's Timothy. And then he says in verse 22 of Timothy, he says, but you know of his proven worth. <clears throat> that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Verse 23, therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. You know him then, you know of him, you know what he's done consistently over time. So Paul says, as soon as I can spare him, I'm going to send him to you. And just so you can see, just in that little section of Paul's comments in Philippians 2, the kind of child in the faith Timothy has turned out to be. Paul has complete confidence, and I'm going to show you some other places where it's just astounding how much confidence Paul has in Timothy. And so about a year or so later now, Timothy is serving as an elder in Ephesus, and he's been left there in a very difficult situation, and Paul writes his first letter to him, and he starts it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. And you can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to have you go to Acts in just a second, but 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. <clears throat> and Paul says this of Timothy, Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, that really is the first obvious characteristic of a spiritual child. Just like we said, the opposite of being a spiritual father, okay, being a spiritual father, the first characteristic of being a spiritual father is what? Producing spiritual children. That's just obvious. So if you're going to have, a, if, if you're going to produce a spiritual child, the first uh, obvious characteristic of that spiritual child is that there has to be savings faith. In other words, we all realize that you can't be a genuine child of the faith and they should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are redeemed. And here's the thing, and that's why I'm saying this. This is what we strive for, beloved, in all of our relationships with people. Never get sidetracked onto other peripheral, less important things. If the Lord's brought that individual into your life in any way, if you have an influence in, of any kind in this person, you are given that opportunity to produce a spiritual child, okay? And the first thing is you want to see him pray and receive Christ as their Savior. So keep that in mind in all your relationships, okay? Salvation is what we strive for in all of our relationships. Salvation's the beginning. Timothy was genuinely saved. And that's very basic, of course, but very important because this church had people who apparently, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, weren't saved, okay? Now, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, if you want. And once again, I'll put them on the screen, but we have time, and I think it's important to see uh, what this looks like, and you can be underlining some of these things in your Bible. <clears throat> Paul is warning Timothy away from some of the traps that are in the ministry. And he says to Timothy uh, in verse 11, he says, but flee from these things you, what? What's he say? Flee from these things you, how's he address him? Man of God, right? Flee from these things you, man of God, and pursue righteousness, goodness, uh, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Verse 2, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, this is a redeemed person, okay? Obviously. It's not just, well, I think he's saved. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of sure that he, he's born again. No, this is a redeemed person. The confession of faith was solid. Perhaps it occurred at his baptism, genuine salvation. Now, just out of curiosity, you may wonder, how did Paul lead Timothy to Christ? I wondered that too. And so I just thought, well, that's a good question. So let's look at it. And we don't have an actual verse in Acts 14, uh, but we do in Acts 14, 6, 
have a story that's very familiar to you, and I think that you'll find this is very interesting what happened here in the example Paul was to Timothy before he came to faith and after. But uh, look at Acts chapter 14, if you would. <clears throat> a very familiar story, and I'll set the, set the stage. If you remember, Paul's in a town by the name of Lystra, and that's in modern Turkey. He's on his first missionary journey. And, uh, and while Paul is there, he runs into a man that couldn't walk, if you remember this. And, and the man is listening to Paul, and Paul sees he has faith to believe, so he just commands the guy to get up and walk. And so the guy starts jumping around, he's running around, and whatnot, and, and the people who spoke the Lyconian language began saying, according to uh, uh, Acts 14, the gods have come down to us. So Paul uh, heals this guy, he sees he has faith to believe, he starts jumping around, he's never been, he walked before, and then all the people there in Lyconium, uh, they are... Uh, uh, or in Lystra, rather, and they speak the Iconium language, they said, the gods have come down, the gods have come down, look at what's happened. And so uh, now we've got a problem, okay, because uh, they want to worship Paul and Barnabas, and they call Bar uh, Paul Hermes or Mercury, and they call Barnabas Jupiter or Zeus. And so the priest of Zeus, who happens to have a, a, uh, a temple right there in town, he brings out the animal sacrifices, and they start tearing their clothes, and they're going to throw down right there for, for Paul and Barnabas. And this is a huge problem for Paul, and Paul's mortified. Now, pick up reading uh, now in verse, if you would, in verse 15 of Acts 14, will you? It says this, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Let's stop right there. So he preaches a message, and many respond to it. And we're going to see in just a minute that that's exactly what happened. And it's likely then that Timothy's mother and grandmother came to faith. And then Timothy, as we'll look more closely in just a minute. But now the story isn't over by a long shot. And the next part really is just an example of the fickleness of the crowd. Okay? Uh, because in Acts 14, 19, it says some, some Jews came from Derby and Iconium. And what do they do? They take Paul outside the city. And what do they do to him? They stone him. Okay? So they stone him. And, uh, and so... <laughs> So for one minute, they're going, to be, they're going to worship Paul and sacrifice animals to him. And so he preaches the message, and then they take him out and they stone him. And we know uh, that further, Paul talks about this time uh, that after he was stoned. And Paul, I don't even think Paul knows whether he was dead and was resurrected or whether he was in a coma and then resurrected. But one way or another, Paul is outside the city. He gets hammered with rocks. And so he gets back up, and he goes right back into the city. And then the next day, he goes to Derby. And, and we could say a lot, of course, about the example that perhaps was to a new believer named Timothy, who Paul gets hauled outside the city, gets stoned, and he perhaps is dead or is resurrected, or he's, he's in a coma and he's resurrected. And when he gets up, he doesn't book out of the city as fast as he can by the, the least obvious route. What's he do? He gets up, he goes back into the city, and then goes on to Derby. And so I'm sure looking... Uh, like he's uh, been drugged behind a truck or whatever. And so he doesn't look good, but he goes back in, very faithful. And so uh, it's a great example. And we talked about that last time of being an example of a spiritual father. And Paul, of course, gives that example by default. Uh, Timothy just sees this, this guy coming back and doing what he's doing. And then look at verse, four, chapter 21 of chapter, of chap verse 21 of chapter 14, if you would. After they preached the gospel to that city, that's Derby. So he goes on to Derby and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch. So he goes into Lystra, <laughs> right after he's stoned, goes to Derby, preaches, many disciples, comes back, okay, and, and mark this, he, here's what he's doing. He comes back to, uh, to Lystra, Iconium, and, and to Antioch, and he marked this, he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, which means people came to faith when Paul preached the message, okay? He stopped them from sacrificing to him, and he preached the message, they came to faith, he comes back, strengthens the disciples. And that was likely to be Timothy, his mother, and his grandmother. And he encourages them, listen, read, read the passage with me, verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith. 
Um, and I just stop right there and just say this, because what happened to Paul is certainly not as attractive as prosperity theology would have been. Okay? Prosperity theology would have been a lot better. Hey, you know, follow Christ and everything will go well for you. Except Paul's covered with bruises and, and abrasions and everything from being stoned almost to death or perhaps to death. Okay? So he encourages them. So, I mean, they're looking at Paul thinking, I don't know if I want this whole disciple thing going on. Okay? That's not like your poster child for being a disciple. Okay? Come and have a rich life, your best life now, whatever. Okay? I mean, here's Paul. He's all beat up. And that's not really an attractive thing to new disciples. Okay? So Paul says, like, he encourages them in the faith. Okay? He says this. All right? Through many tribulations. Now, here's the question, beloved. Do you think there was any question in the minds of the disciples about what they were to expect for the rest of their life? No. Right? Probably not a lot of attrition. If you're a real disciple and you see what Paul went through and that doesn't daunt you, you're truly born again. Right? So, he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting. So the church has started, Paul appoints elders to lead the church. They, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Now, let's pause right there, okay? Now, it's very likely that Timothy came to faith during Paul's visit, and he saw many things that really bespoke the faithfulness of a spiritual father, and that, no doubt, made a huge impression on Timothy. And so, Paul and Barnabas, you know, head back to Antioch. They report to the church of the journey. They go to Jerusalem. They have this meeting about what should be required when the Gentiles come to faith, and they hash it all out, and they write a letter, and they take it back to Antioch, and they read the letter, okay? Now, look at Acts chapter 15, verse 36, okay? See where we are? I just kind of summed up those, those verses for you. Now, they go back to Antioch. That's where they were first sent out for the first missionary journey. And after some days, Paul's recovering, no doubt, and, and they're resting and, and, uh, and enjoying the fellowship. Paul says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, this is my own comment, okay? Barnabas is probably sitting there going, oh, yeah, that sounds like a real good idea. That just went so well the last time, all right? I mean... Just put yourself in a position, beloved. It's not like they're going out and, and there's huge crowds and there's like just loving Paul, all right? And, you know, he flies in with his jet with his diamond pinky ring and his Armani suit. And he's like, yeah, everything's good. You know, things are going to be good for you too. No, okay? He's telling Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit every church where, where we preach. Now go back and read that, beloved. That didn't go well a lot of places, okay? Now, Paul and Barnabas, Silas, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Mark, they prepare to head out on Paul's second missionary journey. And just kind of summing this up, Paul and Barnabas separated over Mark coming along. And so Paul goes on with Silas to strengthen the churches, and Barnabas and Mark go together. Okay, now pick up in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Okay, this is really great. <coughs> Paul came also to Derby and to where? Leicester. So he's back on his second missionary journey, but he's going to encourage the churches. Okay. And a disciple was there. What's his name? What's it say? Timothy, that's right. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, Paul began the church there, okay? So we're talking about people who came to faith with Paul's message, all right? So this is really cool. So he comes back, and there's a disciple there named Timothy, verse 2, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So in that short of time, after Timothy had seen Paul's example, no doubt, and the Holy Spirit was at work in Timothy, he begins to grow. And he's of note, okay? And you know how that is. You see people growing in the church, I mean, it's like, wow, it's obvious. And this is probably one of those things. So, verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So he just wants to make sure uh, that 
he comes in line and doesn't, isn't a stumbling block to Jews who are watching this ministry. So, it's likely that the elders Paul had wanted back in Acts 14, laid their hands on Timothy, and he went off to serve with Paul. And then we see, remember, as Paul referred to him, like a child serving his father. So, a true believer led to faith by Paul, after watching Paul's example, began to illustrate this next characteristic of a true spiritual child. And here it is, okay? You can jot this down in your notes, okay? And we'll do this just quickly. All right, number two, second characteristic that marks a true, true children of faith, true disciples, is continuing obedience. This is what you want to encourage, okay? Continuing obedience. We certainly don't need to draw out this point. We talk about this all the time, okay? Uh, faith and obedience, uh, talked about in a parallel passages in Scripture. So uh, the New Testament certainly has this as a basic quality of all believers, so it certainly characterizes the life of a true spiritual child. It's what you want to see. So as we said, you provide that example in yourself, okay? You want to see continuing obedience, and you provide that example of your own continuing obedience, all right? So Paul says again, uh, Philippians 2 uh, and verse 12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my absence only, but now much more in my, uh, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That certainly wasn't the pattern among the Corinthian church, do all things without grumbling and disputing, all things. And so, uh, so he says Timothy, who is continually uh, being obedient, continuous obedience. Uh, John 8, 31, you hear Jesus say, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. It's just obvious, beloved, I'm just giving you some passages that kind of help firm that up for you. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That, of course, is walk, that word walking is just the pattern of your life, uh, the pattern of the life of the one who's truly saved. The child of faith is continuing obedience. Timothy had it. 2 Timothy 1, 13, Paul says, this, he says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And in 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul says, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Just keep on living that way, Timothy. Let me just encourage you. Be an obedient uh, disciple, continuing obedience. Just do the things you've learned. Continue to do the things you've learned. And there were some in the, in the church at Corinth, or in Ephesus, rather, where Timothy is serving here, and they did not do that. So 1 Timothy 1.18, he says to Timothy, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keep the faith, and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Some in Ephesus, where you're leading right now, Timothy, have already shipwrecked their faith. Some are not being an, uh, continuing obedience, okay? You don't do that, and don't let that hurt uh, your own testimony. Just continue to fight the good fight of faith. And so, uh, just obvious, okay? Saving faith, and then continuing obedience. And then this third one, this next characteristic of a true spiritual child, is servanthood. Servanthood. We want to produce a servant, okay? When you lead somebody to faith, you continue to show them how to walk in continuing obedience. Of course, the word dwelling in them richly and all wisdom is how that works, okay? And then this next one, we, you want to produce a servant. In 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 1.9, there's a description of conversion that's so beautiful, and you remember it. He says, you turn from God, you turn to God from idols, and then what's the next part? Do you remember by memory? To serve, there it is, to serve the living and true God. 
You turn to God from idols. So you turn from serving idols to serve the true God, see? We were redeemed to serve, always in order to serve. That's the substance of which true salvation is made. It's a serving heart, see? When you reproduce a spiritual child, they are taught to serve because that's what they were born again to do, okay? Faithfulness on behalf of someone else in serving presented the gospel to you, right? Mrs. Solomon and BBS when I was six. Faithfulness gave up her vacation. She's a teacher, middle of her summer. The last thing she'd probably do is want to teach a bunch of six-year-old kids running around like me making big messes and being disobedient. And yet, faithfulness, see? You were born again to serve, and when you produce a spiritual child, you want to teach them that is what you were made to do. When Jesus said to the rich young ruler, follow me, he went away and didn't want to follow, did he? And yet, conversely, when he says to his disciples, he says, follow me, what'd they do? They dropped everything, they dropped their nets, and they followed. Timothy was a true child in the faith because he was marked by servanthood. And we've illustrated already, and I, as in the background, I've shown you this servant heart, so we don't have to illustrate it again. But by the, writing of, you know, by the time of the writing of 1 Timothy, he's been serving with Paul nearly 20 years. He went on important missions to Thessalonica and to Corinth, as we said. He, he accompanied Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem. He was by Paul's side in his imprisonment. After his imprisonment, he was uh, serving on his behalf in Ephesus. That's where you get First and Second Timothy. And in Philippi, and he's headed to Corinth. He was a real servant, and, and it wasn't easy. And he struggled. And by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy, he's really going through some struggles and some hard times and trying to hold his ground. And it wasn't easy because it's never easy pastoring. And he's trying to, he's making sure, Paul's just encouraging him, hold on there, you can do this. He's a genuine servant. In Romans 16, 21, as we saw at the end of our study in Romans, he says of Timothy, Timothy, my fellow worker. It's tough. Paul knew it was tough. He encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy, just stick with it. Be a servant. Now, Fourthly, fourth characteristic that's to mark the life of a spiritual child and mark the life of Timothy, and that is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. We certainly see Paul emphasize it in his letters to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.11, and just, I'm skipping through it. I'd like to study this pa the, these uh, pastoral epistles with you at some point in the future, but just kind of skipping through. 1 Timothy 4.11 Prescribe, he says, and teach these things. Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather, and if, in other words, don't act like a kid, but rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example to those who believe until I come give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching, which is why, beloved, just as a footnote, why we do what we do here. It's why uh, Jim comes up and reads publicly the Scripture. It's why we exhort and teach. Uh, exegetically. I mean, that's because we're told to do that. That's what we're supposed to do. It's what the church is supposed to look like, okay? Back in verse 6, he says, in pointing these things out, you will be a good servant of Christ, continually nourishing and nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following, see? So Timothy was solid in terms of doctrine. So Paul just says, Timothy, continue to keep reading, keep teaching, keep exhorting, okay? And just as a footnote, think about this, beloved. I don't think there's a chance in the world that Paul would ever have left Timothy at Ephesus or sent, uh, sent him to Philippi or in our passage to Corinth if he hadn't been a teacher of sound doctrine. Because if anything is representative of Paul, it's that, a teacher of sound doctrine. 
If anything's representative of Paul, it's that. And so Paul, there's no way Paul's leaving Timothy at Ephesus. There's no way he's sending him to Philippi. There's no way he's sending him to this troubled church in Corinth unless he is solid in sound doctrine. He emphasized it again in 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So he says all that, okay, and the importance of the time in the word, the importance of teaching the word and sound doctrine. He says, so I charge you, knowing all of that, okay, I charge you, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You have the foundation of the word. Do those things. I charge you, Paul says. You're prepared. You are sound in doctrine. Do these things. And finally, number five, so we have saving faith, obedience, servanthood, sound doctrine, and then this uncompromised life. An uncompromised life. That's what you want to teach a spiritual child, to live an uncompromised life. And we can illustrate this just quickly. Any kind of effective ministry, listen, is going to be coupled closely with conviction, okay? Any kind of effective ministry is going to have to be coupled closely with conviction. And an uncompromising kind of conviction is an element of spiritual strength, and it's essential to any kind of effective ministry, okay? It's essential to any kind of effective spiritual ministry. You're going to have to have some convictions, uncompromising kinds of convictions based on what the Word of God says, okay? The little stuff matters, and the big stuff matters, okay? It all matters. And that's what we have to teach spiritual children, spiritual offspring. It all matters, okay? And they have to realize that you and they are in a battle, a war, really. And I think that's missing a lot of times in our discipleship process to realize and help new believers realize that they're in a war, actually. And if you go unprepared into battle, you're in trouble. And so they need to understand that. Very, it's, very, it's all very sacrificial, and it demands an uncompromising life. Jesus, when he's laying out the cost of discipleship in Luke 9, 62, one of my favorite passages out of Luke, he says this, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And you apply that any way you want to, beloved, okay? But before you is the kingdom of God, that's the whole illustrative uh, agricultural illustration of the plow and plowing for the kingdom, it really uh, harkens back to what Paul was talking about, you know, planted and watered. And it's an agricultural illustration of working for the kingdom. And then you're looking back and seeing what you're leaving and what's more attractive and what you'd rather do. Jesus is just really straightforward with them. And when Paul is instructing Timothy, he's outlining the characteristics of an elder or a pastor. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he speaks of the uncompromised life. <clears throat> he says this, an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. And, of course, that above reproach is not able to be called out. Husband of one wife, one woman man, uh, just a figure of speech in the Greek, just committed to the one who is his wife. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. That's showing the love of, stra showing the love of strangers. Able to teach. Not addicted to wine. It's just not known as a drinker. Or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceful, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And it goes on, says, because if he can't keep his children under control, uh, how, can he keep, how can he guide the, the, the house of the Lord? And that really is the issue that we hearken back to before. 
An inconsistent life at home is not going to produce disciples at home. And, of course, if you can't produce disciples at home, you're not going to be able to produce disciples in the church. And so this is, you know, there's a lot we could say here, and we won't go in detail. I just want to, and we'll have to wait for another time, but two things really stick out. Number one, that's an uncompromised life, okay? And two, and again, I say this again, there's no way that Paul would have appointed Timothy over this church or given Timothy these guidelines to replace himself, because that's why they're there, okay? Timothy's going to move on, and he's going to appoint elders, and this is what they have to look like, okay? There's no way that Paul's going to put him over, over this church in Ephesus and give him guidelines to replace himself if this didn't describe Timothy, okay, already. Because how absurd would that be when Timothy's trying to, to raise up elders that he doesn't even look like, okay? So it's, it's just tremendous understanding here of how Paul viewed Timothy and what he turned out to be like. That's a life of integrity that reaches this level of spiritual leadership, okay? And Paul gives similar guidelines for those who are going to serve the church in the role of a deacon. And in verse 10, he says, these must be proved. In other words, take a hard look at them. Are these things true in their life? They must be verified and tested to see that they hold and live out the truth. Over in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says this, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, he says, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you, both who you are and what you say. And beloved, that isn't easy, but that is the characteristic that we want to see in the spiritual duplication of our lives, see? An uncompromised life, and that's what Paul produced in Timothy. So Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, and listen, and just so that you know, he leaves Timothy in Ephesus right after having to put out two guys who were perhaps leaders in the church out of the church. Paul goes there to Ephesus. He puts two guys by the names of Hymenaeus and Alexander out. And they were probably leaders. They were probably important in the church. So Paul goes and he says, listen, you guys are causing all the trouble. We've given you two warnings. Out you go. And then he says, okay, Timothy, take over. How, to, how, how much trouble do you think that was? And how much heartache do you think they both had to have to do this? And then here's Timothy there. And so Paul went in there and he did what he had to do, eliminate these two guys. And he sets Timothy in there as the leadership and he leaves. That's amazing trust. Now, as we close, back to our passage, okay? And now the fruit's just going to fall off the tree. And as we said before, I gave you some, some characteristics of what a spiritual father looks like. We're going to see two more right now, okay? And you just got the characteristics of a spiritual child, all right? So I think that gives us a package of what discipleship really looks like. Okay, now look at verse 17, if you would, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. <coughs> For this reason, because... In other words, because I'm your father, because there's, you know, I'm producing spiritual offspring and they have to look a certain way because I love you, because I've warned you, because I give you an example. Okay, all that. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Now we saw what that looks like. And he will remind you of my doctrine. Is that what he says? No. What's he say? Of my ways which are in Christ. Okay? Of my ways my life, my pattern of life, all the stuff mixed in, okay? And then he goes on with his father idea. When Timothy comes, you're going to see how I would do it if I were there. That's the idea. You'll see my ways which are in Christ. Christ was living through Paul, and Paul had been used of God to reproduce that same kind of life in Timothy. When Timothy gets there, you'll know how I live. You'll know how I walk in Christ. You'll see it in my true child in the faith, Timothy. That's the idea. 
Now back to the characteristics of a spiritual child, or a spiritual father rather, that we looked at last time. Number one, producing spiritual offspring. Number two, characteristic of love. And that's demonstrated by the willingness to do hard things, by the way, okay? And number three, willingness to admonish. Number four, the willingness to, ex to be an example. And then we find this fifth one in verse 17, and he says this, just as I teach everywhere in the church, just as I teach everywhere in the church. That's number five, giving out principles or teaching, okay? If you're going to be a spiritual father, it's going to be part of what you do, okay? You're going to give out the principles for life. You're going to give out in that principles for life in your teaching. And Timothy is going to come. He's going to show you the principles. And again, and just in case you're wondering, you know, Paul says to the church, these are the same principles of how to conduct yourself in the church that I teach everywhere, okay? I'm not teaching you anything differently than I say to every church. Paul taught the principles and he lived them. And as a spiritual father, he reproduced them in someone else's life. Anessa Forrest, I think, could be a perfect example of that, again, produced by Paul. You know, Titus, again, another, another one who understood these principles, the way Paul lived, and was reproduced that way. And, that, and that's really true of Christianity, see? Paul wants the principles that, uh, he taught the principles, he lived them, and a spiritual father, he reproduced them in someone else's life, okay? That's really the second Timothy 2, too, isn't it? The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be faithful to teach others also. That's that multiplication effect. So we're just being a master of the obvious here, obviously. If you're going to be a spiritual father, you're going to have to know the Word of God, okay? Because that's going to be your basic for teaching. And the teaching needs to be consistent. I teach the same thing everywhere, Paul says. It isn't relative truth. It's absolute truth. It's the same for everybody. It isn't just cultural, okay? It's absolute. And it isn't any different from you than for anybody else. Timothy will remind you of my ways, he says, which are in Christ, the same principles that I teach everywhere. See? So if we're going to be a spiritual father, and we are to be, because that's our job, we are to produce spiritual offspring. We are to have a characteristic of love demonstrated in the willingness to do hard things and to be spent and used up and a willingness to admonish and to be an example and to give out principles and teaching. And finally, that sixth characteristic of a spiritual father is discipline. It's discipline. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. So we have to come to those that we've led to Christ and we have to deal with them. Sometimes. Sometimes you have to confront them and what has to be done. And no doubt some who would be in that church would be ones Paul is going to confront that he didn't lead to Christ, but that are a part of the church now. And he's doing the job that he has to do as an overseer. Verse 15, now some have become arrogant. The Corinthian church had a pride problem. We've looked at it already. And some were saying, and here's basically what was happening. Paul wouldn't dare come around here again. And that's how arrogant people get. He wouldn't do anything. He's not going to show up here. You know why? He's afraid to show up here. You know, we've got groups. We know what we're going to say. You know, we're divided off. We, we got this under control. Paul's not going to show up here. Paul is no big deal. And then in verse 19, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And of course, all Paul puts that in there, if the Lord wills. Why? Because sometimes he planned to do stuff and the Lord directed him another place temporarily and he didn't get to go when he wanted to. But I'm going to come, he says, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power, okay? We're going to find out just who's talk and who's the real deal. That's the issue, okay? And you can understand that this way. This isn't an issue of words, okay? Paul says, I'm going to come and find out who's genuine. Because, beloved, I'll tell you, most of the time when there's trouble in the church, 
People have a lot of talk who are causing the trouble, but there's not a lot of substance to their life. There's not a power going on there. It's not ministry with power. It's not people being duplicated in their own life. No. Most of the time, no. And Paul's just pointing that out. He says, listen, this is how it works in the church with difficult things. Paul illustrates for us that people who cause the factions, who stir up the trouble, who polarize the church with their opinions, that person's true character is determined not by his words, but divine power exhibited in his life. Okay? So Paul says, we're going to look and see what's going on here in his life. We'll just expose all of that. So discipline's an important part. Love's not just blind sentiment. It, it love really disciplines when it's necessary. And again, just to illustrate this from the home and from Proverbs, as we saw earlier, an undisciplined child, listen, a lot of times belongs to a parent who doesn't know how to love the child. An undisciplined child a lot of times belongs to a parent who doesn't know how to love the child. And it's true spiritually too. And here's why I say that. If, if Christians, everybody who's a Christian had been led to Christ by somebody, why aren't we all mature? Because somebody who led us to Christ or somebody else along the way hasn't cared enough to bring us to that place. And maybe it's because they haven't been willing to discipline us because they haven't loved us enough to do it. See, Maybe. And Paul asks this last question, and that's, with that we're going to stop. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And there's both of those things, see? He can come either way, both in the spirit of fatherhood, okay? Neither of those are wrong. Both of those are okay in the correct environment. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and in spirit of gentleness? And Paul gives them a choice. Shall I come to you with a rod? Well, if, if you don't change, that's what's going to be. Or in love and a spiritual gentleness. How do you want me to come? I'm coming and I'm going to come shortly. How do you want me to show up there? Now, you notice there's no answer there, right? Because this is a letter to them. Who had to provide the answer? The church, right? The Corinthians. That's a really great illustration of a loving father who, who's going to use the rod when he needs to use it who's going to use discipline when he needs to discipline, and who's going to love and, and be in gentleness when that's called for. But the decision is theirs. Have you ever done that with your kids? Those of you who had kids, right, when they were young? Okay, here's your choice. Either do what Dad says, or there's going to be a spanking. Right? You do what Dad says, there's always kinds of hugs, and everything's great. And if there's a spanking, there's going to be hugs afterwards, but there's going to be discipline. And that's really the same thing. Paul says, this is your choice. So, we'll, we'll stop right here, because we're completely out of time. In this amazing passage, we see... The spiritual father, as Paul applies it to himself and to Apollos and those who lead the church and really in, in, in a in more narrow application to every believer. We see the characteristics of a spiritual father. We see the characteristics we want to see in spiritual offspring through the example of Timothy. So Paul cared about them. He cared about them enough to bring them into conformity to the proper pattern of behavior in the church. And he was going to push the issue until it got resolved. And in the fullest sense, it's what we're all aspiring to do. Okay? So let's get, busy with, let's get busy witnessing and being a part of producing spiritual offspring so you can be a part of producing those kinds of things that we see in the life of Timothy and being the kinds of things we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. Amen? Let's um, bow and be dismissed in prayer as we reflect on all that we've talked about. It's been a lot. I, I apologize. It is, there are just many things there and it's condensed in that section. All right? But uh, I know that you are uh, have the Holy Spirit, and he is tutoring you, and so you can absorb them. Lord, we thank you today for this marvelous time together. <coughs> We're particularly grateful for your word. We say that often, Lord, but it is so rich. We're thankful that we can dig into it, that we even see 
uh, the difficult things that go on, but really describes the church today. It just, and how it's always been in the age of the church, that um, these things are in every church to some extent. And when they're not, we see it in a preventative form here. And when they are, we see it in curative form. And Lord, we know that you are uh, certainly powerful enough by your Holy Spirit to uh, bring it to bear and however it has to be brought to bear uh, in your church today. And so, Father, I pray that uh, as we see these uh, wonderful principles of what it looks like to be a spiritual father, first of all, we'll be producing spiritual offspring, which is all of our job. And then secondly, we'll be about doing, uh, teaching the things that we need to teach and doing the things we need to do. And then as we're looking at these spiritual offspring, as we see Timothy, we know what needs to be taught. There are many things we could pass on, uh, but we really need to pass on the things that we see here. And so, Lord, I pray that you bring them to mind, not just to mind, but to begin to work their way out in how we act, how we conduct ourselves with those who we've led to faith. And, uh, Lord, I pray that that will just, as we know it will, according to your own will, a richer, more vibrant, more alive, more productive church. For it's your will that we be a healthy church, that all churches that call by your name be healthy. And the prescription for those things are here. And Lord, we thank you today for uh, all that's gone on, for the faithful giving, for prayer, for music, for the word, for Sunday school, and all the things that went on in Children's Church. And for those who minister, thank you for uh, their faithfulness to give themselves away. Thank you for giving many to the ministry here. And Lord, I pray uh, to the Lord of the harvest, you, that you send forth more workers, that we might be able to do more for your kingdom, uh, for your own glory. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.